Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society, and we bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Because of the topics we cover, some of our episodes may get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it must be. Together, through discussions and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. One freaking Croatian word I tried last week. <laughs> the one. The one. I've been trying so hard. But I can't help it. The Spanish always sneaks into mm-hmm. what I'm saying because that the that is the language that I learned first. Mm-hmm. And so my, well, English is the language I learned first. Spanish is the first foreign language I learned. And it like, I forgot it by the way. Um, but like if my brain is trying to think of the way to say this Croatian word, it's like, oh, you mean Spanish? And so what happened is that I said Ljubljana. I said Ljubljana, right? Ljubljana. But the word is in fact Ljubljana. Ljubljana. Which is still wrong because I'm very American. But the last in is basically what I'm mm-hmm. what I am talking about. I turned it into a ny sound, which is wrong. That that sound is not right. Uh, but I will say, even though I pronounce it Ljubljana, right? Ljubljana, which doesn't sound great coming out of my mouth. In English in general, we just really screw this word up like bad. Um, and it's normally pronounced like Ljubljana. Uh, which is just really bad, just so wrong. So if, if you can forgive my massive blunder, dear listener, I promise I will do better and, and actually come right when I try to flex in the future. Okay. That's that's a fair promise. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. Anyway. Good correction. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Okay, so here we are, part three of the series on private prisons. In parts one and two, we covered the history of and the arguments for private prisons. We tried anyway. And then today we're going to be talking about the arguments against private prisons, or at least against private prisons as they currently stand. There are um, a lot of arguments, to be frank, like 
you know how last week we said that we were really struggling to find actual data to support the arguments? Well, I mean, the data wasn't exactly thrown at us this time, but it was definitely easier to find. And it turns out that the reason that we couldn't find a lot of data for last week's episode it may have been because the studies that look at these institutions don't really make private prisons look great. As a quick refresher, um, most of the arguments we talked about were basically the same arguments that we have heard about a, a free market in general. Things like increased flexibility, uh, competition driving better service and innovation, more cost-effective services, stuff like that. Uh, the one pretty prison-specific argument was that you know private prisons provide a better overall prison experience, which just seems oxymoronic. Um, but that seemed to be like the the thrust of of the arguments. Also, keep in mind that when we're talking about this uh, this week and and through the whole series, when we talk about private prisons, we're 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 really talking about the entire private prison ecosystem including things like inmate phone and email service or, or medical care, stuff like that. Um, so now that we've set the table, prepared everybody for the tasty uh, intellectual meal to come, let's, uh, let's start juicing. I'm a, I might be hungry. I, I might be hungry. Um, <laughs> let's, let's start juicing this grapefruit. All right. I want to get to the meat. Because today's episode, I have personally been waiting for, and apparently been writing when I was hungry. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> what are the downsides of the private prison system? Let's go. Let's go. Okay, well, let's, let's start. Go. We're going to start with longer sentences. And I think that this is a really surprising point for some people. Um, but actually, the mere existence of a private prison in the state impacts the length of sentences for convicts. So we're going to caveat this part of the conversation. We're talking about state-level private prisons here because in state trial courts, unlike federal courts, convicts are more likely to be sent to the same state's prison as where the trial occurred. So that is to say, if I'm standing trial in a Virginia state court, there's a higher likelihood that I'm going to go to a Virginia state prison. Whereas at the federal level, I could stand trial in the Eastern District of Virginia, but then be sent to a prison in the middle of Texas. And further, state trials account for the vast majority of trials in our country, which provides for a more robust sample set. Yeah. Now we'll talk about later on how this this general rule isn't always true, especially when it comes to private prisons. Um, but for this, uh, the study that we're specifically going to be focusing on, they focused on these state prisons because the, the way they were comparing things, it allowed them to compare like to like more easily. So like cultural expectations and norms and mores were similar when they were comparing institutions and that's how they would, that helped them sort of control their analysis and, and eliminate variables. So with that caveat out of the way, um, in this study, it was done by uh, uh, Dipple and Poiker. The researchers looked at areas, like I said, that were relatively the same and they looked at sentencing lengths in these places and how they were impacted by a private prison opening in the area. 
and they found that the opening of a private prison has a large effect on on sentencing lengths in the prison state, but only during the first two or three months after opening. So what is a large effect? According to them, when a private prison opens for every 0.4% increase in private prison capacity, the average sentence length increases by roughly 1%, which maths out to roughly 12 days of an increase uh, in sentence length. Um, so this, this occurs when controlling for a lot of different variables, and it basically means that like, as a private prison fills up, the sentences get longer for people being sent to a private prison. Importantly, the, the study did find that a public prison opening ha- does not have that same effect, which suggests that private prisons have short-term effects on the application of justice that public ones do not have. And this isn't exactly great when it comes to equitable justice. After all, defendants who happen to stay in trial shortly after a private prison opens can expect to be sentenced to three additional months relative to otherwise identical defendants who stand trial for the same crime just a few weeks earlier or later. The equity implications of this effect are further accentuated by other research showing that these defendants may also serve a larger portion of their sentences with lower quality rehabilitative care. This effect, however, drops off after roughly three months or when those private prisons reach capacity. However, a separate study by Wisconsin School of Business assistant professor Anita Mukherjee found that inmates held in private prisons in Mississippi from 1996 to 2004 served 4 to 7% longer than inmates serving similar sentences in public prisons. Uh, Professor Mukherjee argues that the reasons for this increased incarceration length are more than just a superficial desire to keep inmates longer for profit. Um, There are actually like a galaxy of reasons for the result. Uh, And one of those reasons, it might be like a pathway, like like guards at private prisons are often paid less and worked harder than at public prisons, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But due to this, uh, turnover is high which means that private prisons in turn are staffed with more inexperienced guards on average uh, than public prisons. These inexperienced guards are more likely to hand out violations to inmates because that makes it easier for them to maintain authority. And in fact, inmates in private prisons are 15% more likely to receive an infraction. And then these infractions are taken into consideration when a parole board is deciding whether or not to release an inmate earlier based on good behavior. Since Professor Mukherjee was comparing sentences within a single state, it was the same parole board reviewing both private and public cases for early release. And the primary difference was which prison the parole applicant was coming from. Because the private prison inmates were more likely to have more infractions, they were less likely to receive parole. This is kind of a microcosm example of all of the (laughs) problems that we're going to talk about. It's just the whole web of the system is, it's like landmine after landmine after landmine for uh, convicts, right? There's just so many places for them to receive an unequal share of justice. I don't know how else to to word that, but like their justice isn't the same justice that a public prisoner would receive. Exactly. It's, it's a lot and easier it's no, for them to get the hard way around it. 
yeah. in this system. And it's no like very rarely, very rarely. I won't say it's never because we'll talk about something a little later. Uh, but it's rarely somebody that's like actively behind the curtain, like pulling strings and trying to make people go to these places and stay longer. It's it's just it's it's systemic, right? It's a systemic problem and the way the rules function and the way everything functions and the way the situation just is causes these uh, inequality these equity issues so one of the the primary like problems with this is the issue of recidivism and i think we've said that word a lot yeah. actually but we haven't really defined it which is that's on us um, because i think we accidentally let jargon kind of slipped through because we just assumed it was one of those words that everybody knew. Um, so uh, way too late in the discussion, I'll clarify that recidivism is just what we call it when a former inmate commits a crime again. Essentially, it's a measure of how likely a convicted criminal is to reoffend. Great. So we're two hours late in this conversation by this point, but we got there. Now you know it recidivism is yes, exactly good 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 catch on that one um, so you'll remember one of the points that, that was in favor of private prisons in our last episode was that the use of private prisons led to better outcomes for inmates uh, the companies themselves usually talk about this in terms of better jobs for former inmates or better housing or better prison environments etc cetera, etc cetera. but what they're all saying without like really saying it that we've been able to find anyway is that they re reduce recidivism. If you send an inmate to a private prison, they're less likely to recidivate. That's a fun word but to say. It is a fun word. I really enjoy that one. But um, we are in the arguments against private prisons episode here. So you can guess where this conversation is going. And the bottom line up front, at best, private prisons have no statistically significant effect on recidivism rates. At worst, well, they do have an impact. They make them worse. <laughs> right. I mean, as yeah. you might imagine, this particular topic has been the focus of a lot of study and a lot of claims. And by and large, the prevailing theory is that private prisons actually increase recidivism because their primary goal is, ta-da, to make money. The best summary that we found about this theory is that due to their business model and that need to generate profit, private prisons have a greater interest in making money than in decreasing incarceration levels, which actually does result in higher average recidivism rates. Now, a careful listener may discern the issue that we would have with a statement like that pretty quick. A lot. Like a lot, a lot of the people arguing this particular line of logic kind of just leave it there. It's just this sort of like, obviously, a company operating for profit isn't going to help inmates because they get their profit from inmates. Therefore, they would be working against their own interest to reduce prison populations. That And that's like, it's supposed to be this like self-supporting statement. Right. You know? But that's not, that's not what we do around here, right? Because... Right. Even if something looks and feels like sound logic, you have to have data to back that up, which in this case there is. 
A study of Minnesota prisoners released between 2007 and 2009 found that incarcerating a person in a private prison increased the chances of the person being rearrested by 13%, and it increased the chances of that person being reconvicted by 22%. A study of Oklahoma prisoners released between 1997 and 2001 found that incarcerating people in private prisons increased the likelihood of recidivism by up to 17%. And then a study of Florida juvenile prisoners released between 1997 and 1999 found that incarcerating young people in public facilities instead of private facilities reduced the likelihood of them being charged with a criminal offense within one year of release between 73 and 8.5%. So... That one kind of is like the opposite. Yeah. Public prisons actually reduced it. Um, one thing I want to point out, you might be listening to those stats and thinking, well, these are, you know, these are old. This is 2007, 2009, 97, 2001, 99. Like these are some pretty old dates. The, the reason for that is, is that when you are, when you are studying recidivism, you are, you are going to have to look at a broad window of time because you there's no like there's no end point where recidivism where it stops like after you're released from prison (laughs) it's not called recidivism for five years and then after that you just committed a crime so depending on when the researchers decided to draw the line uh, would determine how far back they would go for the data and so like some of these researchers were looking at seven years post-release mm-hmm. uh, to, de- to determine recidivism rates. Um, so even though it's 2021 right now, this data is what we're working with because it's you know basically the most recent data we, we've got. There, on, in addition to that little disclaimer, um, nope. So now that you know where we're working with this data, why it sounds old, I would like to throw out the two studies that might offer some hope, I guess, to a private prison supporter. So remember Professor Mukherjee from like seven minutes ago or so? Uh, her her study didn't really prove that private prisoner or private prisons increased recidivism per se. Her data showed prisoners incarcerated in private prisons were no less likely to recidivate. So this suggests that either the the marginal returns on incarceration of incarceration, like the extended incarceration that they get, are so low or, or are low, or private prisons increase recidivism risk, but that is offset by them staying in jail a little longer, right? So there's like a break even. Yeah. Um, the second study found no correlation between recidivism rates and the type of facility, which would be public or private, uh, in a review of Florida juvenile prisons from 2003 to 2006. So at best, you know, <laughs> from the data that I was looking at, it it's like a private prison could be like, well, at least we don't make it worse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. So we just threw, we just threw a lot, a lot of data at people. So I'm going to summarize that really quick. 
Lots and lots of studies saying recidivism is worse coming out of private prisons. A couple saying that, at best, it's equal to public prisons. There were a handful of studies that claimed recidivism rates were better coming out of private prisons, mostly out of Florida. But well, the guy who wrote two of those three studies was penalized by the Florida Ethics Commission because he was receiving large consulting fees from the private corrections industry. So those two, as well as like that third one, were later actually discredited by another study with a better design that basically found that recidivism rates between private and public institutions were roughly the same. Pretty good summary? Yep. Okay. Not a lot of strong data saying, supporting the claim that recidivism rates are better, right? Yeah. Most of them saying mm, they're worse. And now there are like uh, we mentioned in the last section, there's a lot of reasons for this. Private prisons are, are, are more violent than public prisons, for example. Assaults were three times more likely at Mississippi's four private prisons, four times more likely in Idaho, two times more likely in the all-female Otter Creek Correctional Center in Kentucky than at those states' publicly run equivalents. It can also be harder in these private prisons for inmates to contact their support networks, you know, their family or friends, due to factors like private prisons, telephone companies charging exorbitant fees and banning things like in-person visitation. This cutting off of contact, making it prohibitively expensive or difficult, has the very predictable outcome of increasing an inmate's chance of recidivating because they just don't have anywhere to go once they're out yeah actually that's that's a, a perfect lead-in to um one of the things that i found very interesting about private prisons and that is that this for-profit prison system this prison industry is causing disproportionate harm to literally underprivileged communities um, we've already talked about the fact that occupants of for-profit prisons tend to be younger, poorer men of color. But the damage that these privatized systems causes to underprivileged communities goes actually far beyond that disproportional representation. And when we say underprivileged, we literally mean communities of people who enjoy less privilege in our society, especially financial privilege. These for-profit systems make it more difficult for inmates and their families to successfully navigate incarceration by exporting prisoners to other states and by charging excessive fees for everything from banking to toilet paper. So according to the, the Equal Justice Initiative, it's not uncommon for states to contract with private prison companies to house prisoners outside of their home state. And this is where that caveat comes in that we were talking about earlier, it's more likely for people at the state level to be incarcerated in their home state, but it's not guaranteed. And when it comes to these private prisons, uh, it's, it, I mean, it's a crapshoot. There are an estimated 10 to 20,000 prisoners incarcerated outside of their own states. Now, remember, these private prisons hold what old? Uh, 8% of the total prison or inmate population, yeah. so something like uh, 180,000 inmates total, somewhere, somewhere in that in ballpark. There. Yeah, so 20,000 of those are just not anywhere close to their homes. So as of 2019, Hawaii had transferred about 45% of its prisoners mm -hmm. 
Vermont exported around 15%. New Hampshire and Wyoming each transferred about 5% of their prisoners to other parts of the country. And this practice is more common inside the contract prison system where companies often have the freedom to transfer inmates in their care to the most cost-effective location. In fact, some private prisons are entirely dedicated to housing out-of-state prisons. Uh, nope. In fact, some private prisons are entirely dedicated to housing out-of-state prisoners. There is a prison in Kentucky whose population is entirely made up of inmates from Vermont. Right? And there are all kinds of reasons why these inmate transfers happen beyond just putting them in the most cost-effective place. Um, it's interesting to do some research into, but it, it can be everything from uh, a state that really supports the privatization of the prison system, and so it gives more prisoners to that system, to um, states that where the general population is, um, is kind of anti-penal uh, system. They tend to take a, a more cautious approach to the criminal justice system. And so uh, it is easier for them to get support for incarcerating people and sending them out of the state than it is to get support for building new prisons as the inmate population increases. Uh, so it's really interesting if you want to check that out. We're just going to hit the top levels here, though, um, and mostly talk about why it's damaging to the prisoners themselves and their families for them to be displaced. Um, on its face, right, moving prisoners around from state to state doesn't sound like a particularly harmful practice. Um, but in reality, this displacement can have significant effects on both the prisoner and on their support system like we were talking about earlier. One effect of this displacement is that it limits opportunities for families and friends and other supporters to visit the prisoner. And this can put a really heavy strain on the important relationships that contribute heavily to a formerly incarcerated person's chance of successful reintegration into their home community and into society at large. Those relationships are vitally important as they're released from prison and, and trying to um, become a productive member of society, so to speak. And so if they are not able to maintain those relationships, they can actually have a more significant difficulty adjusting to life outside of prison. The average distance that a prisoner is displaced is about 1,200 miles. So if I was a family member and I wanted to visit that inmate by car, that's something like 20 hours of driving at 60 miles per hour without stops. But most folks are, they're going to need to stop overnight during a drive like that. And so they would need a hotel room and they would also need a hotel room at their end destination. So here we are. We're going to do some math here for a minute. We're looking at an average of $3 a gallon for gas in the United States right now, which will get you about 25 miles based on the average car. To go 1,200 miles, you're going to need 48 gallons of gas or $144. And then the average hotel night in the United States costs $91, so we need two nights, and that's another $182 there. So right now we're at $326, and that's not including any food cost. And that's also not including the cost of any time that someone would have to take off of work to make that trip. Now, and that's also just one way. And that's also just one way, right. So we've got to multiply all of that by two. And you may be asking at this point, why am I working you through a middle school math class word problem? <laughs> That's because next, 
I'm going to tell you that the average annual income of an incarcerated person before they go to prison is $19,000. The people represented in the criminal justice system disproportionately come from low-income and very low-income families. For someone at that income level, a trip like this would eat 20 to 40% of their monthly income in one chunk, which makes it a prohibitive endeavor, to say the least, let alone for families of prisoners from Hawaii, for example, who there is no way that you're getting in a car and driving from Hawaii to the continental United States to visit your prisoner. You have to get on a plane. This is so damning, honestly, because we know that receiving visitors in prison can significantly reduce recidivism rates. But it can also it can also improve mental health for incarcerated people, which means that while they are inside, they are more capable of getting the benefit of any rehabilitative programs that they are taking part in, any learning or training that they can take part in. They're your mental health drives so much of what you are capable of doing. One study from the Minnesota Department of Corrections found that any, any visit reduced the rate of recidivism by 13% for felony reconvictions. 13% is huge. It's huge. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, just imagine dropping the crime rate by 13%. Right? People would, whoever was in charge at that time, would forever be hailed as like a national hero. <laughs> <laughs> right? This, ah, this lack of access, it has significant negative effects on, on people outside of the convict themselves. These secondary effects. Children of incarcerated people, for example approximately 2.7 million children in the United States have at least one incarcerated parent. Those children are at a greater risk for negative social and academic outcomes like substance abuse or school failure and even incarceration themselves. But research has indicated that parents who are able to visit or even have consistent communication with their children during incarceration are more likely to be positively involved in their lives after release. Which, being positively involved in your children's life but in your family's life at all is another, it's like one of those social anchors that keeps people from making these poor decisions and ending up in prison. Right. And it helps to mitigate some of these factors that these kids are already at risk for. Right. Exactly. These these distances also affect the relationship between important non-familial bonds like lawyer and client. Being able to visit your client is critically important. There's so many unwritten rules that lawyers have when they're representing their clients. One of them doesn't necessarily apply in this case, but like death row inmates, it's kind of like an ethics violation to not visit your client yeah. if they're on death row. <laughs> so not having this access makes it more difficult for the two to communicate and it limits the effectiveness of the service a lawyer can provide their client. In addition 
different prison facilities offer different services, different pay rates, even rehabilitative programs are based on state requirements, which can significantly affect access to quality care and rehabilitation for inmates. If you are arrested and tried in a state that dumps a lot of of tax resources and revenues into these rehabilitative programs, mm-hmm. but then you're shipped off to a state in the South that does not do the same thing, <laughs> not to not to paint with too broad of a brush, um, y- you are going to have a a less less good <laughs> outcome. Your rehabilitative process is not going to be as effective for you as it is for if you had gone to a better funded facility. Yeah, there I mean, there are even cases of of state prisons offering vocational training and certification programs. Um, And if you move from a state that has a certification program that allows you to come out with a state license to do a certain vocation and you're transferred, even if you have maintained all of that education, you don't leave prison with that license. You still have to make your way back to your home state and apply for that license. And the process gets a lot more complicated. And it can be expensive just to apply for a license. Exactly. It's just, it's wall after wall after wall. Yep. Another way, actually, that these privatized systems can negatively impact underprivileged groups is through the cost of care and maintenance for incarcerated people. Um, A lot of people don't know this, but in many state and private systems, inmates and their families are required to pay for many facets of their care. This could be like pay-to-stay programs where it costs $3 a day to be in jail. Mm -hmm. But it also includes things like winter clothes. So if you want anything warmer than your basic jumpsuit, toothpaste, medical and dental services, access to communication like phone calls, emails, and even toilet paper in some cases. But since the average prisoner earns between 12 cents and $2 per hour, if they earn anything in their state for a full day's labor, a lot of the cost of maintaining their needs falls to their family members and people outside of the prison. One of the ways family members contribute to to this care is by sending money directly to the financial service uh, accounts of inmates. Um, In some cases, this can be done simply through money orders. But increasingly, prison systems are contracting with financial services, uh, with financial services companies like JPay, which is a private company based in Florida, to provide direct deposit and payment access. Now, JPay handles accounts for more than 1.7 million incarcerated people in 32 states. That works out to nearly 70% of the inmates in U.S. prisons. And for 40% of these prisoners, there's no alternative way for them to get the funds that they need. However, because companies like JPay are for-profit entities, one of the ways they earn their money is through fees charged to prisoners and their families for these transactions. So these these fees range in severity and can be as high as 45% in some states, meaning that it can cost a $1.45 total to send $1 to a prisoner's account. So 45 cents on the dollar, right? So that would be $145 to send $100. You're losing an additional 
basically 50% of what you paid just to give them money. When compared to states where families have the ability to send money to inmates for fees closer to, say, 5% or for flat rates through state-run systems, it's clear that privatization takes advantage of already underprivileged communities. And again, even if it's not intentional, right. it is disproportionately impacting them. It's making things disproportionately harder for people. I might be able to afford that extra $45 to send my my loved one $100. Sure. But if I'm working for minimum wage, right. that is a, I mean, that's a day's labor just to send some money. Yeah. And, and, and to think that like, if you are not able to send that money, then your loved one may not have warm clothes that they need, or they may not be able to get some medical care that may be considered elective because it's non-emergency, but it's still important. Mm. Yeah. Now, I, I think people might be like, well, some of this stuff, you know, isn't critical. They don't need it. They're inmates. Again, it's all of these little things that stack up and make it more likely that our crime rate stays high right? in the United States. Not that our crime rate is actually super high. That's a messaging problem more than a reality like we discussed last week but still right. like it like that our crime rate doesn't continue to drop and it's things like emails yeah it can cost 25 cents to send an email it can cost 10 cents to receive an email yeah i was for some of these i was people. dorking around on the jpay website and in some of these places you have to buy like email stamps and yeah. the more you buy the less it costs for each individual yeah. one but still you got to sign up. You got to pay just to have the right to send emails. You have to have like family members have to pay for basically a subscription service to send the emails right. on top of actually paying to send each individual email. I don't know if that's JPay or a different uh, one. I forgot uh, who was who was operating that particular email service, but it's just one more example of it's just money at every turn, Right, money at every turn. And this isn't, this isn't just people in private prisons, which is only, only quote unquote, 8% of the prison population. This is 1.7 million prisoners for this JPay example that we were talking about. That's 70%, like we said. And it, it, it is really, I found it very interesting, um, not surprising, but interesting that in situations where these contract companies are brought in, not only is the company getting the profit from dealing with all of these people, but the states are benefiting as well. The states are getting a kickback as a percentage of fees for allowing these companies to come in and operate. So it's not like they're just, you know, allowing these companies to come in and, and make all the money and we could just stop them. They're actually getting a significant portion of their operating budget covered by allowing these contract companies to come in and handle things like this. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're just going to touch briefly on safety and security in these prisons because I feel like we've covered a lot of this in a bunch of different places. Um, but just kind of as a reminder, the Justice Department Office of the Inspector General did did their own research. Right. There were so many reports of 
assaults and violent incidents and terrible things happening in these private prisons that the the Department of the Inspector General actually did go in and do some studies and do their own research. And what they found, basically, was confirmation of all of these things that we've been talking about in bits and pieces. It was a 2016 report, and they reported on safety conditions at 14 private and 14 federally operated prison facilities. Of course, they did all the work, made sure that they were roughly comparable, and they looked at data in eight different categories. They looked at contraband, they looked at reports of incidents, they looked at lockdowns across the entire facility, incidents of inmate discipline, how often telephones were monitored, a category called selected grievances, which is basically complaints. <laughs> um, they looked at urinalysis drug testing, and they looked at sexual misconduct. The investigation found that in a majority of the categories examined, contract prisons had more safety and security incidents per capita than uh, comparable Bureau of Prisons facilities. Uh, the exceptions were drug test results and sexual misconduct, actually. The contract facilities had higher rates of assault, uh, both by inmates and other inmates and inmates on staff, uh, which we discussed earlier. As part of the investigation, uh, the BOP visited three of the contract prisons and citations were given at all three for at least one security and safety infraction. Now, I'm going to take this moment to interject about my interjection <laughs> from last week where I was talking about how I doubt that uh, these these government contracting facilities are are more flexible than the government itself because they do have to meet the same standard. And I double check this to make sure they do have to meet the same standards um, that, that the federal government puts out for their own you know, prisons. But here's the catch. In order to be held accountable for those standards, there has to be somebody there watching them. Mm -hmm. And not only that, the person who is there watching them has to care. So you could theoretically be operating um, at a, a, a much lower standard, a much lower standard for, for service, if you will, than the federal government has set out, has stipulated, and then either, you know, dress, dress things up whenever the inspector's coming, or you just know that your inspector doesn't care. And you just they just rubber stamp everything and things continue, which might sound far-fetched except for the multiple accounts of this that I have read. <laughs> so I guess in a sense then, that is a point in favor of private prisons. They are more flexible, but only because <laughs> nobody's doing their job. Like not in a good so, way. <laughs> yeah, that's not great. Not great, guys. Back on topic, we don't have any research-based indicators for why these private systems tend to be more dangerous and less secure overall, aside from some of the factors that we mentioned, like less experienced staff and these corners being cut. It's, it's kind of hard to like isolate things and test for them in these real-world settings. However, one, one very 
likely factor in the situation is the fact that the workers in these prisons are underpaid and undertrained. Yeah. Which is a huge issue. It's huge. Huge issue. It's huge. Now, I'm I'm going to do the thing that we said we don't want to just do off the bat. And I'm going to say, mm-hmm. let's think about this logically for a minute, shall we? <laughs> right? <laughs> One of the primary benefits of a private prison is the ability to cut costs and reduce the cost of housing the inmate population. One of the ways that they can achieve this is by adjusting their prison staff. They hire fewer people or pay their staff less than government employees would make while providing fewer benefits, or even reducing how much is spent on things like training and maintenance costs. But, as is the usual MO for us, we're going to use data now to back up our logic. So one of the studies that we mentioned previously that compared private and public prisons also compared the salaries, the training levels, and the staffing ratios in those prisons. And that study noted that officers in the private sector were paid roughly $5,300 less than those in the public sector at the lowest end of the range, and $14,000 less at the top of the range. One estimate by the Equal Justice Initiative found that private corrections officers earn up to $23,850 less on average in annual salary compared to the public sector. Um, Some of that has to do with union versus non-union is one big factor in Mm. those uh, salary negotiations. Mm -hmm. Officers that were studied were required to undergo roughly 60 fewer hours of initial training than their public prison counterparts. And the private prisons also had a higher inmate to officer ratio with 6.7 inmates per officer as compared to 5.6 inmates per officer in the public systems. And like, One more inmate per officer doesn't sound like it should be all that overwhelming, but when you think about it spread out over 2,000 inmates in a a facility, even 500 inmates in a facility, that really changes the amount of staff that you're able to have on hand. Hmm. And then with fewer staff members, with less financial incentive to do well and less training, it really is no wonder that these for-profit prisons see more safety and security incidents than state or federally run systems. And it's also no surprise that one of the strongest complaints against contract prisons by inmates and by outside observers is the poor standard of care. And that is, I mean, in reality, it, it, it must be nigh impossible to provide an acceptable standard of care for prisoners when you are working with short undertrained staff it's uh, shoot it's hard enough to pay to provide an acceptable standard of care in any industry when you're short staffed but even when you're like normally staffed like it it's life's hard mm-hmm. y'all i don't know how else to put it there's always so many different variables so providing a acceptable standard of care in like in hospice is so hard now imagine that those people that you are provi- trying to provide that standard of care to are at like the rock bottom of their life and you've got some kid who's like 19 who hasn't slept more than four hours in the past week trying to provide some sort of acceptable standard of care. Mm-hmm. Oof. 
but the issues that have these issues, the ones that have been reported through various investigations and observations are they are alarming. One study revealed that in private prison facilities, uh, there were more than twice as many complaints filed about staff and staff treatment of inmates than in public prisons. And that's just the complaints filed that actually made it into the reporting system. You are a burnt out guard and you get an inmate writing up a report about you for something that you did that you just don't agree with or don't care about. You've got all the power there. Yeah. If or the person, the person who receives the report, rather, um, you know, if that's your friend, and I can tell you, the mentality in some of these places between the 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 correctional officer and the inmates are like you are two warring factions. Yeah. You know, and so if you are, you know, being upbraided by an inmate. Sometimes your buddy might make that problem disappear. Mm-hmm. Happens all the time. If you've been following the news at all in the last five years, especially conversations surrounding immigration and immigrant t- detention, there's no doubt that you've heard the horror stories about conditions in some of these facilities. The space blankets and the children sleeping on the floor, all of that. Does, a lot of these are private facilities. Perhaps more alarming than those those headline-grabbing tales is the reported ongoing substandard level of care prisoners in private facilities and facilities with privatized healthcare systems receive on a daily basis. Carl Takai, an ACLU attorney who co-authored a 2014 report documenting the subpar conditions in these facilities, has said these prisons operate without the same systems of accountability as regular Bureau of Prison Facilities. And prisoners suffer. In some cases, these failures fall to the general care of prisoners. For example, that Bureau of Prisons investigation we mentioned earlier also revealed that in some of these facilities, new inmates were being improperly placed in special housing units. That's capital S, capital H, capital U. Um, which, shoes. Huh? It's oftentimes pronounced shoes oh well there you go they're put in a shoe there you go yeah thanks for that and these units are intended to separate prisoners from the rest of the general population and are usually reserved for disciplinary or administrative segregation but they were just putting new inmates there because they didn't have anywhere else to put them Um, this was such an egregious violation actually that the bureau of prisons changed their contract terms after this investigation to prevent that practice from happening but also in many cases, the failures in the standard of care really shine through in the reports of medical care in these private facilities. Investigative journalist Seth Wessler was working on a two-year series for The Nation, and he found case after case of immigrant prisoners especially presenting with treatable conditions, but who were not provided with even baseline medical care. And in some of those cases, the men died of these completely treatable and manageable illnesses. In the Bureau of Prisons' immigrant-only contract prisons, licensed vocational nurses often serve as as the only caregivers for inmates. These are nurses who have received one year of training, and they're intended professionally to serve as support for registered nurses and for other medical staff. 
They're able to like take your vital signs and write your chart. But instead, they're required in these facilities to perform jobs that are equivalent to those of registered nurses who have four-year college degrees. (laughs) And Mm. as part of this investigation, Wessler actually obtained records from the Bureau of Prisons and found that 10 of these private prison facilities had actually broken state nursing practice laws by pushing these LVNs to practice outside the legal scope of what they're trained to do this. It's presenting as a chronic problem of subpar medical care, and it is causing prisoners both in immigrant-only and in non-immigrant facilities to suffer from otherwise treatable conditions. I think a lot of good people who have never never had to struggle really in the same way that a somebody who has been trapped in the cycle of poverty has struggled. Mm -hmm. A lot of people like that might question, you know, well, if I was that LVN, why would I do that? Like that's outside of my scope. I would know that I'm breaking the law most likely. The problem is you do your job or you get fired. Yeah. And when it's the choice of, do I, you know, inject something that I might not be getting, you know, trained to do but i know well enough to do or i can't feed my kid right you're gonna give the person a shot right you just are i mean and people right people who go into the medical profession they don't necessarily do it because they they want to be powerful or or they want to earn a lot of money a lot of them do it because they genuinely care about the people that they're Mm -hmm. caring for, that they're taking care of. Mm -hmm. And so to think, if I'm an LVN working in one of these facilities and there's maybe only three of me for three or 400 people, if I leave, if I quit, if I say you're asking me to do things I'm not supposed to be doing, I'm out, what trust do I have then that those other two people are not just going to be carrying the entire weight? Right. Like you would want to stay around and give the best care you possibly can. Even when it's outside the scope of what you've been trained to do. Yeah. A lot of pressure. I was reading an account about a, uh, a facility where they needed to make cuts to the budget because they had they had, I think, failed an inspection. I couldn't exactly I don't remember. Uh, but basically they needed to save some money. They needed to make cuts to the budget. So they basically fired all of the doctors in the facility except one. Mm -hmm. And he was, I think, reduced to part-time. And he basically had his 20 hours a week to to help 1,000 inmates. Jesus. Can you... I could not imagine. Right. A doctor has a hard job to begin with. Can you imagine 1,000 inmates... Mm. I was reading another account where the prison, a prisoner was complaining of a health issue, um, pain in his legs, and got to the point where he couldn't stand. And it was keeping him awake at night. He had to basically sit in a wheelchair to try to ease the pain, and he couldn't sleep. And he kept going back to the medical, uh, medical in this private prison, and they kept telling him he was fine you're fine. And he was like, no, I've got to go to the hospital. I'm in so much pain. I'm in so much pain. Um, he, his feet were beginning to, to, this is gross and I'm sorry, but they were literally beginning to ooze pus. Oh, man. 
And basically what happened is he was, his limbs had gone gangrenous and the hospital staff wouldn't, not the medical professionals, but sorry, the prison staff, not medical professionals, but the people, the administration in charge of basically signing the checks for everything wouldn't send him to the hospital to get treatment because, because that was an expense right. until he was basically on death's door. And he ended up losing like both of his feet and several fingers because the, the infection spread. I think he lost the like all of on all of his fingers past like the first knuckles. Right. So and that's just because like it was a cost saving expense to not send this guy to get medical care until it was necessary to save his life. Right. Not his limbs. Right. And that I think that account comes from an, an an incredible book that I read in preparation for this series uh, called American Prison by Shane Bauer. I would highly, highly recommend it to anybody who is remotely interested in this. It is a pretty uh, compelling look at the entire system. It's also where we happen to pull a lot of our information about the history of private prisons. Oh, yeah. He goes into the development of it. Shane Bauer does. Prolific writer on the topic. He is personally connected to the plight of the prisoner <laughs> because he was held uh, captive in Iran for two years uh, as a uh, basically a prisoner of war, even though he was a non-combatant. Really interesting story. Just really interesting guy. I would love to have him on the show someday if you know we ever get rich and famous <laughs> because he's got... An incredible story to tell. Anyway, I know we're running a bit long at this point, but um, I've got one more point to make, and I really want to hammer this home uh, in case you haven't picked up on it yet. But in an industry that depends on the incarceration of human beings to make a profit, you are not going to find the most morally upstanding characters making choices and i want to highlight one example um, of the um, call a spade a spade blatant corruption that such a an arrangement can can cause um, some of you have probably heard of this but have you ever heard of uh, an array a little arrangement called kids for cash i have not yeah uh, it Always makes me think of the Cars for Kids commercial, which I have a personal vendetta against because they are all horrible. Uh, but this is even worse. Even worse. Allow me to elucidate. In 2009, two judges in northern Pennsylvania were revealed to have been enforcing a zero-tolerance policy for bad behavior by kids. Everything. I mean everything, even relatively minor offenses in the grand scheme of things like fighting at school or, or um, uh, drinking alcohol before you were 21, right? Stuff that literally millions of people have done. In fact, I might be the only person I know that didn't drink before I was 21. <laughs> I was a Boy Scout. Not really, but um, anyway, doesn't matter. It's just stuff like that, right? These judges were sending these kids to juvenile detention centers to do basically hard time for these things. Um, the basic thought process, the things that they preached were like 
it's that like scare them straight mentality. Like I'm going to be really hard on you now and scare you now so that you don't get worse in the future, which is its own terrible mentality that we can talk about later. <laughs> um, but it, it, they would go around to schools, these judges, like they were super popular. The schools would invite them in to talk. The judges would go into the school and like talk to the kids in like an, a, an assembly and say, if I ever see you in my courtroom, I'm sending you away. And just basically make these blanket threats to these kids. And people loved it. Of course they did. Of course they did. Anyway, kind of turns out that maybe they had a little bit more incentive than just trying to raise upstanding citizens. Uh, like millions of dollars worth more incentive. They were getting kickbacks from the private detention center that they were sending these kids to for every kid that they sent. And they sent, between the two of them, I think almost 2,500 kids. It was like 2,400 and some change. To juvenile detention. Potentially traumatizing them for the rest of their life. Possibly wrecking their lives overall. Giving them a record. All for some cash. They ended up doing hard time for their crimes. Thank, Thank God the justice system worked there. Then they paid a combined $4.25 million to, to fund local children's health and welfare programs. I should say uh, they were fined a combined. They didn't pay it out of the goodness of their hearts right, as part right, of right. the uh, restitution. But like none of that's going to undo the time that those kids did. Right. And most of those kids likely didn't deserve a sentence that harsh. Mm -hmm. um, there were there were tons of people involved in this. I think one of them ended up getting 39 charges oh in the gosh. federal case, like racketeering and bri uh, bribery and uh, extortion, just horrible things for sending kids to... Ugh, I just can't imagine how depraved you would have to be no. to operate like that. No. Any... It, it's just a horrible situation. And the thing is, it's far from the only case. I mean, it happens in broad daylight in a lot of different ways. It basically happens in the state. The state saying, you know, the, the sorry, the private prison saying, hey, we'll give you a certain percentage if you allow us to open a prison and offset the costs of, of housing inmates. That's basically a kickback. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to like append it here at the end this particularly notable case um, to highlight that there is really an entire web of problems that arise when a society begins to profit from sending people to jail. Corruption is slow and it is insidious and it can take decades to grow, but without constant vigilance, it will eventually consume every system we rely on to operate a functional, equitable, just society. And these private prisons are a cesspool for corruption. And I'm not saying that the public prisons are somehow beacons of honor and morality, okay? Like, don't mistake me there. We have a lot of work to do on the American prison system. But, oh, this is also the part of the show where I very, very, very 
very late into the game disclosed that my mother worked for the Bureau of Prisons for 30 years. So I have an inside look at a lot of this. Yeah. Sorry, I might have a conflict of interest here. (laughs) But like a lot of these stories are stories that I grew up hearing about firsthand. So I know that there is work to be done. I know that it can be better. And I know the standard that the federal prisons operate at and how mad my mom would get and the people that she worked with would get when that standard wasn't being met. And to read these accounts of how much worse these private buildings are, I've got goosebumps because I'm really worked up right now. <laughs> like try, Trying to keep it quiet because it is after midnight here and I, my my nephews are visiting and they're like two and three years old and <laughs> okay, okay. try not to wake them up but i'm so pissed off just like I, secondarily i don't know how to explain it but the corruption and the overall picture that this paints is just not where we should be as a society i gotta stop before i start yelling Whew. that's okay that's you just you take a breath because I want to address a, a theme that I have heard. Um, I do know that we have some listeners who are more on the conservative side of the spectrum than we are. Um, and the general consensus, at least where I am and in many parts of the country, is, yeah, okay, this stuff isn't great, but if you don't want to end up in a situation like this, You shouldn't do the crimes, right? Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. It's that whole mentality. And I've heard that from a lot of people as we've been talking about this private prison system and even the public prison system. Um, And I I have some friends who work at the the federal medical detention center here in town and... and (laughs) They actually tend to take that that same approach, some of them. Um, but we've talked about it very often on this show, how many different tools exist in our society for us to devalue people who are other than us, for us to pass judgment and decide that they are not worth our time, our investment, our effort, um, they're not worth our consideration, our kindness, or even... They are of no value to society. And so often that perspective is used on incarcerated people, formerly incarcerated people, people who are incarcerated for illegally entering or re-entering this country. And we're so willing as a society to strip them of value, to strip them of rights, and then ignore it when people profit off of that devaluation. As I was doing research, I stumbled across a really cool article that that and that analyzed prison systems based on an ideological spectrum. Um, and it basically was trying to evaluate different characteristics of the prisons and whether they were geared to normalize people, um, to rehabilitate them and get them back into society, or whether they were focused on something they called less eligibility, which was basically to devalue them and emphasize that they are less eligible to participate in society. And it just reminded me that as we're having these conversations and we're talking about the upsides and the downsides and the history, so much of this is contextualized in that othering and in removing value from people who have 
been incarcerated for crimes. I wouldn't even necessarily say committed crimes because you can be convicted of a crime you never committed. You can be incarcerated and never convicted. Um, uh, I'm sorry, but everybody listening has committed a crime. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was going to get there. Everybody I listening. I was going to get there. Oh, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. I didn't mean to stomp on you. No, Go. You're good. You're good. No, but like that's the point. We We take these people who have committed these big deal crimes, right? The ones that they get sent to state and federal prisons for, and we just automatically devalue them. But as we're driving down the road every single day, not a single one of us hasn't gone five miles an hour over the speed limit, right? Like we all commit little crimes all the time, every day. And if committing a crime is enough to devalue you or, or devalue someone else, then it is enough to devalue you. So as you're listening to this episode, if you find yourself tempted to, um, to, away from empathy, if you find yourself tempted to harden your perspective against people um, who find themselves in these situations, I would just encourage you to consider the last time that you committed a crime on purpose or not on purpose, and whether or not that devalues you to the point that you should be subjected to these same things. That's a good point. Yeah. I will say... I actually used to take pride in not speeding. Like after guy. after my after my youth, I had some pretty wild uh, encounters with police, and it, it scared me pretty straight for a while. Um, because specifically because I was speeding so bad, mm. so like I used to like I don't speed. I didn't mm -hmm. until I moved out here to Northern Virginia, <laughs> and. Um, Recently, my foot has gotten a little heavier because otherwise I will die. I will die. I will die if I don't speed out here. Um, it's crazy. Unless I'm sitting in a traffic jam, um, which is the 98% of the time. Um, but you are absolutely right. One of the things I wanted to bring up uh, to, to about your friends who work in the federal prison, uh, FedMed Springfield, um, <laughs> very familiar with that facility and they need to remember that one of the first things they were trained on was the mentality that inmates are humans. Mm -hmm. My, my mom talked about that all the time, how that was one of the first trainings she got was that the inmates are still human. And if you forget that, if you lose sight of that, you are going to be a terrible person. Oh, yeah. And if your mentality is play stupid games, win stupid prizes, I mean, that works for, uh, you know, Bubba getting ready to say, you know, hold my beer right. and do something. That's what that is meant for. Not for the criminal justice system. Right. Not for cop killings. That used to k piss me off in training whenever our, our trainers would say, uh, that's when you light them up, you know, pay, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And it's like, what? What? That is not what that, that phrase is supposed to, to mean. Yeah. Okay. It means if you go noodling for catfish and a snapping turtle bites your finger off, that's where you That's use exactly that what that's for. If you hold on to your bottle rocket a little too long and you burn the shit out of your hand, that's what that's for. That's when you use that phrase. For, for situations of grave and permanent injustice, maybe we should have a little more mm, decorum. Right? Just Empathy, saying. humanity, compassion. Empathy. It, just any number of things. 
let's 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 not dehumanize ourselves by forgetting that other humans are still human yeah because it does it makes you less human when you start treating human beings as less than you it you you become less you just do um soapbox moment i forget the other point that i was going to bring up but yeah i mean i'm total totally in agreement with you we are all but for the grace of god mm-hmm. you know one wrong place wrong time moment away from being behind bars ourselves yeah you know so keep that in mind when we start bringing these things up and i really do recommend uh giving a listen or reading that book that i uh brought up if you can't remember what it was we're gonna put it on our social media yeah we are that's right you can find it and and us on facebook and instagram and twitter fireside breakdowns um and we try to keep stuff flowing there. We've been doing pretty good lately. Pretty good. We, I mean, I mean, Robin. Robin's been killing it. Um, if you like what we're doing here, shoot us a note. We'd love it. We'd love it even more if you left us a five-star review on the listening platform of your choice. The link to guide you through that process is in the show notes. It's just a little you know, rate this podcast link and it'll say, you know, this is what you listen on and here's how you do it. Super useful. Every time we get a great positive review, it helps the algorithm know to drive people to listen to us and listen to the show. Obviously, more people listening to us, we really do think it'll make the world a better place. That's why we do this. I mean, that would be great. Great. If we got something super duper right, you want to give us all the kudos in the form of a long form letter, you can send it to us at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. If you want to send it to us because we got something wrong, you can also send that mm-hmm. to the Gmail account. I promise you will read it. But if you don't come correct, like I'm going to do moving forward when I say Croatian words, <laughs> we're going to dump it in the garbage. Bring sources. We love Honestly, we love being wrong. Right? <laughs> because it means somebody was listening and cared enough to correct us. So bring your sources. Let us know if we got it wrong. Um, that being said, I think it's time to wrap this up with some good news. Yeah. I think we're going to call it good perspective, right? Because I'm not sure that there's Take like a specific single piece of good news that ties into this conversation. Uh, but we do want to say that it seems like the public sentiment is turning against private prisons. And yes, by calling that good news, we are acknowledging a little bit of bias here because I think it's pretty clear that we are not for private prisons and privatized prison systems the way they currently stand. Okay. Yep. So as of 2019, eight banks folded under pressure and will no longer finance the private prison industry. Three states have passed legislation to curb the the operations of private firms that manage prisons and detention centers. And one of the world's largest PR firms actually ended its relationship with GeoGroup, which that's a really, really big deal because PR firms really like money and companies like GeoGroup really, really are willing to pay money for the kind of services that a PR firm will offer. So it's actually a really big deal because it changes the entire conversation around how people see that company 
also, I think I miss I misread that when I was uh, typing it. It's not one of the world's largest PR firms. It is the world's largest PR firm. Of course. It would take the world's largest PR firm to handle a company like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then yeah. with the Biden administration cutting off federal contact contracts with these privatized prison systems, it looks like these prisons are going to have to change or fail. And, you know, we, we don't want to overstate the significance of this. They're currently doing just fine. But these are all great steps toward a more equitable and more just criminal justice system and society. And that's always good news. Yeah. That is great news. I do want to highlight something. I think there is room in this world for a private prison industry that could work. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what that is. I know that the current model is is wrong. Right. I mean, that's a, a personal opinion, but it is wrong. I truly, truly believe that. I'm not saying there's no way it can be right. Yeah. Maybe they'll change and they'll get there. But yeah. I personally, until that point, I would love to see a private not-for-profit rehabilitation system implemented. It can be private. That's totally fine. It doesn't have to be run by yeah. the state. Uh, but I would love to see it be a not-for-profit. Somewhere in Texas, <laughs> T-Don Hutto just had a stroke. Yeah, well, he can kiss my ass. That's right. On that note, everybody, thank you very much for listening to us. We will be back one week from now with another just awesome pile of delicious intellectual food stuff for your brain. I'm still hungry you heard it thank you so much for listening uh, until then everybody take care of each other Bye.